This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Nicene Creed. Well, good afternoon. My name is Bart Bile. I'm the pastor here at TICF. And we have been working our way through a series on the Nicene Creed. We are approaching the end, the last things. Uh, our last week in this will be next year as we just squeeze in before the end of 2021. And today we are meditating on this sentence in the Creed, which will appear on the screen behind me, I believe. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And our text today that I'm going to springboard off of is from the book of Acts, Peter's sermon, great sermon on the day of Pentecost, and we don't have the time to go through this entire sermon, but let's jump in close to the end of Peter's powerful, spirit-filled, Christ-exalting message in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 32. And Peter writes, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what a wonderful reminder this passage is, and indeed that single sentence from the Nicene Creed, that forgiveness meets us at the very entrance to the Christian life. The forgiveness of sins is not a reward held out in the long-distant future for those heroic saints who manage to toil to the top of the mountain through works of self-flagellation and self-atonement. At the very beginning of entry into the Christian faith, as God's very first gift to you, he gives forgiveness. And God says, I am washing you clean. Through the waters of baptism, I'm washing you clean of all shame and all guilt and all filth. And I'm going as a sheer gift of grace through Jesus. I'm going to lift off from your shoulders the burden of unease and anxiety and guilt. I'm just going to remove that so you can enjoy a new relationship with me so that you can enjoy new life in Christ. 
so that your very first steps on the journey and really every single step you take following the Holy Spirit is a step of joy, of freedom, of liberty as you walk in the good of God's unreserved, full, unlimited, and infinite forgiveness through Christ. And again and again, we need to remind ourselves all the old records of sin and judgment and condemnation have been torn up, they've been destroyed, they've been flung into the fire. Those things no longer stand against us. We stand forgiven, holy, beloved, and accepted before God. Someone else has atoned for those sins. So we no longer are obliged to atone for them ourselves. And I want to remind you that without forgiveness, there can be no real sonship. Without forgiveness, there can be no real freedom. Without forgiveness, there can be no discipleship. And clearly, as Acts tells us, without forgiveness, there can be no church. Here's Peter preaching this sermon at Pentecost. Mere weeks, let me remind you, after Jesus was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, he's filled with the Holy Spirit who's descended on all the believers, and he stands up and boldly proclaims the good news about Jesus. What we heard in Acts was just the end of the very first evangelistic sermon in the New Testament. And this is clearly a message about Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the good news of the gospel. And Peter announces that he is God's Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one who's been prophesied. Now he has come. And you wicked people have crucified him, but God has raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to be Lord and Messiah. And the crowd is cut to the heart. Clearly, this could only be the work of the Holy Spirit. And they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? Peter does not hesitate for a moment, does he? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that day, 3,000 people respond and they're added to the church. Their journey began with a bath. And so does our journey as disciples. It begins by being getting wet, being immersed or sprinkled or whatever happened to you as you begin this new relationship with God. And that baptism is a sign that God, among other things, that God washes you and cleanses you and renews you through the blood of Jesus so that you are now defined not by your past, but by the love of God. And I think it's highly significant. If you go into old churches, you'll see here in Georgia, if you go into the cathedral in, at Svetosko Valley in Mitzketa, near where we live, you'll see near the very entrance in a little side chapel is a 5th century baptismal font. Because the baptistry always belongs at the center of the church, at the entrance of the church, as a sign that we can only enter into worship with the people of God by being baptized and receiving cleansing and forgiveness from God. Jesus has given his church two signs, two seals, two sacraments, baptism and communion, which we'll celebrate in a little bit. And these are two powerful signs and seals of salvation. 
And as believers, we should be drawing immense comfort and consolation from these signs and seals. And I think we make a huge mistake by treating baptism and communion very lightly, um, and we, we miss out on the glory of what God is saying and doing through these signs, what God has said and done to us in our baptisms. You know, Martin Luther was a man who knew a great deal of spiritual warfare and attacks by the evil one. I don't think any of us have been directly attacked by Satan himself. We all rank far too low in the spiritual hierarchy for that, but I'm sure the devil was directly attacking Martin Luther. Uh, There is a famous spot in the castle in Wittenberg where he flung his inkwell at the wall against the devil. And while Luther would be praying and wrestling and being attacked and accused and oppressed, And tormented by the evil one, he would say to himself in Latin, baptizandus sum, I am baptized. I am a baptized man. He didn't look inward to his subjective state and how much faith he was feeling or how much joy or how much love for God. He looked outside of himself, of all things, to the objective fact of his baptism. A baptism Luther didn't even remember because he was baptized as an infant, but he as an infant. But he looked back to that, and he felt across the years the weight and significance of his baptism and what God had said and done to him through that sign. And I'm really hoping all of us today can feel some of the weight of our baptism on our shoulders today, like a good weight, the weight of a blessing and a gift that perhaps we have not even opened. And if for whatever reason you have not yet been baptized, if you've repented and put your faith in Jesus, I hope today's message really encourages you to go and receive that gift that God wants to give you. This is not really going to be a message about baptism, though, because baptism is just a window. It's a sign that points to something else. Baptism is a way that God preaches the gospel to us and actually enacts the gospel within us. And so we look along baptism to look and gaze at Jesus. And I imagine some of you, perhaps even most of you, like many modern Christians, are very suspicious of the idea that God says and does anything in baptism or communion. And we tend to be very suspicious of kind of a Roman Catholic idea that the sacraments operate under their own power, like they automatically and mechanically generate grace for those who go through the motions, as though we can just take the ticket without any kind of heart transformation or faith towards God. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see that outward rites, apart from The circumcision of the heart, apart from renewal by the Holy Spirit, do absolutely nothing for us. I don't want us to go in that direction today. We see here, even in Acts, that this baptism for the forgiveness of sins that Peter is urging his hearers to receive is very closely tied to the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit being outpoured and changing people's hearts and, of course, their own response, their heartfelt response of faith and repentance and receiving the message of the gospel. I want to make it very clear this afternoon that 
The sacraments are completely inert and lifeless and dead apart from a heart of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. But when baptism and communion come alongside with faith, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit and saturated with the word of the gospel, God can and God does profoundly minister to his people through baptism and communion. Something actually happens when we baptize people and when we receive communion together. And I've been at baptisms and I've celebrated communion in churches where the pastor, for some reason, has been very anxious to say, nothing at all is happening here. Nothing to see here, folks. God is not present. And they would say, this is not about God doing or saying anything. This is about you expressing your faith. And then baptism becomes not about what God is saying or doing, but about me testifying to my faith experience or my decision or my act of obedience to God. And of course, baptism is all those things. And we have brothers and sisters in repressive Muslim countries, for example, who know that the choice to be baptized can be a very costly act of obedience to the lordship of Jesus. But baptism is not primarily about your act of obedience to God. And I think that's kind of a perversion of the gospel to act as though it is. Then baptism becomes a kind of work salvation, doesn't it? It's about what I'm doing for God. It's about my commitment and my discipleship and my obedience. And if that's all that baptism was, I could never derive any comfort from it, could I? Because then I'm just looking back to myself and my decision and my commitment and the strength of my own faith. Then baptism is not a consolation that comforts me. It's kind of a heavy burden. Like, you better, you better believe because you've been baptized and you made this commitment to Jesus. What I want to urge upon you today is that the sacraments and baptism in particular, God is actually saying, God is actually doing something. God is actually pouring out grace when we obey and we receive from him. And what I'm really talking about today is just the historic, classic Reformation view of the sacraments. And the Reformers taught, no, the sacraments aren't a mechanical, automatic piece of machinery, but nor are they just empty visual aids we could easily do without. They said the sacraments are a means of grace. They're a channel, a stream, through which God communicates Christ to us by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. The sacraments are a channel, not the source, okay? Not the source. That's not where the grace comes from. Forgiveness comes through baptism, but not ultimately from baptism. Forgiveness, of course, comes from God. When we're baptized, it's kind of an enactment of our union with Christ. God makes us one with him as we go through the waters of baptism. And when we're one with Jesus, 
when we're bound to him, when we're cemented and glued to Jesus and brought into a living relationship with him by the Holy Spirit, all the benefits of salvation are ours. The heart of the gospel is being made one with Jesus. And once you're brought into Christ, once you are a man or a woman in Christ, then every other blessing, justification and forgiveness and adoption and all these things now are yours in Jesus. Now, some of you might be wondering, is baptism absolutely necessary for salvation? I'm sure people here are already thinking about the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized, was he? And Jesus said, he could be with me this day in paradise. It's true, there is a second option. You can choose to be baptized or you can be crucified, right? It's not one that people normally ask for, but you have the option either of symbolically dying with Christ or literally dying with him. The thief on the cross, in a way, was actually baptized with Jesus as he shared his death. I'm being somewhat facetious, of course. I'm not going to say God is unable to save someone who isn't baptized. That's just a question that never arises in the Bible because there's no such thing in the New Testament as an unbaptized believer. You see again and again in Acts, repent, believe, be baptized. Those three things always go together for a normal Christian conversion. I'm not really here to try figure out what is the minimum necessary to be saved. We want to experience the full blessings of God in obedience to him. And what God normally does is that he calls people to repent and believe. And in the completion of that process in baptism, we are brought into the faith and into the church. Something actually happens in baptism. And I want to just demonstrate this by turning to the scriptures, which is where we should always go to see what God actually teaches us. And we're going to bring up four texts on the screen here behind me, which we managed to squeeze into one slide. Four texts that, to me, pretty clearly demonstrate something is happening in baptism, right? Here's Romans 4, verse 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Galatians 3.27, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In Colossians 2 verse 12, Paul talks about us having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. And then here's this one in 1 Peter. Peter talks about this baptism that now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I utter the sentence, baptism saves you, without this text behind me, there might be a revolution here, right? The idea of saying baptism saves people, for evangelical Protestants, we are deeply suspicious and allergic to that kind of language. The New Testament has no problem saying something happens in baptism. God is doing something in baptism. It's not just an empty sign or a visual aid. Something is actually happening. If we take these texts at face value, And it's kind of ironic to me that the type of person who is most insistent on literally interpreting Scripture when it comes to these kind of texts suddenly becomes all vague and symbolic. Something happens in baptism. And what is also clear from those texts is that that something happens with, in, and through Jesus Christ. Baptism is not some kind of separate track of salvation apart from Jesus. The grace of God is coming to us through Christ in 
the sacraments. And the Reformers talked about sacraments as a visible sign of an invisible reality. That invisible reality is Jesus Christ himself, who is is sitting, sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus is at the right hand of God, but he's present with us in these very ordinary elements of bread and wine, in the water of baptism. And those things link us to Jesus. So when we're plunged into the waters of baptism, or when we chew this little piece of bread and drink this tiny little cup of wine, as we will in a few moments, by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are really encountering Jesus and we are really sharing in his risen life. I don't have an engineering schematic of how this breaks down and how this all fits together. I don't have a scientific philosophical explanation of how, of how it all works because we're talking about holy mysteries. And the important thing is not that we can explain the mystery, which would do us little good, but that we're actually participating in the mystery, that we're savoring and enjoying all that God wants to give us through the sacraments. And of course, these are very physical and embodied signs, aren't they? I think that's the reason some Christians have trouble receiving them. We've become too rational and too cerebral, and we think the only way God is allowed to communicate with us is through our minds, as if our minds themselves do not operate through our very physical brains and nervous system. God meets us in physical ways because physical reality is a very appropriate vehicle for God's grace. As the incarnation teaches us, right? Here we are at Advent. We're going to be celebrating Christmas in just a few days, celebrating the fact that the Word has become flesh. God has actually become a material, physical being. God, the Creator, has become part of His creation. And it's through a physical, material being that God communicates His presence to us. We live in a sacramental universe. And by that I mean this universe, God's creation, is porous. And if only we had eyes to see, we'd see that the entire universe is aflame with the presence and the glory of God. But because we're weak and we don't see, God condescends and he comes down low to us. And in these very simple signs, he says, here I am. Here is my grace. And he gives us the water and the bread and the wine as a sign and a seal of his grace. I have a stamp with me. This is the official TICF stamp. Our faithful treasurer, Eloise Peterson, gave this to me before departing to South Africa, from which she may never return if current restrictions hold. So please pray for her to come back. We need our finances in order. And this stamp bears on it the legal name of TICF, In Georgian, I don't even know what our name is, to be honest. We trust the era for those kind of things. And there are certain documents that are not official until, ka-chunk, this stamp goes onto them. And then, of course, they must be inserted in in a plastic sleeve, without which nothing here has any genuine value. 
right? And when those physical things happen, when that stamp is made, the document is sealed and bears official status. Without the document, this stamp has no value, right? Just as without the word of the gospel, the sacraments have no value. Then God comes along with his stamp to his word and goes, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. I'm sealing my faith to you so that in your weakness, you can realize that my promises are true. Here's another illustration that I find quite helpful, and it's a prop. I always bring on stage with me this little circle of metal on the fourth finger of my left hand. This is not my wife. She's sitting over there. But this is a physical sign and seal that she gave me on March 9th, 2007 as a sign of our marriage covenant together. And that was an important part of the complicated ritual of our marriage ceremony that she held my hand and she slipped this ring onto my finger as a sign of her commitment to me. The ring itself does not make me married, does it? If you are a desperate single person, just going home and buying yourself a ring and slipping it on your finger is not going to change your status, okay? Please find someone else to put it on for you. But that doesn't make this ring meaningless, right? Just because my wife is there doesn't mean I'm going to remove this ring and throw it away. It has deep symbolic value. Not because I'm a weak, tender, sentimental person. I secretly am, but I can't admit that. But because it has deep, profound meaning in our relationship. And my wife would be very suspicious if I removed this ring and put it on the bedside table before going out for a night with the guys, wouldn't she? This has meaning as a physical token of lifelong covenant faithfulness. And my ring, even though it's my ring, this is not primarily a symbol of my faithfulness to Michelle. This is the ring that she gave to me. She was the one reciting the vows when she put this on my finger. And although this does remind me of my promises to Michelle, this is primarily a symbol of what she has promised to me. For better or for worse, health and sickness, riches and poverty, I am going to be your wife. And the sacraments are like a ring that God has given us, a deeply symbolic token to comfort us and to strengthen our faith in his promises. They're not a substitute for God, but they are a help and an aid to strengthen our relationship with him. In fact, these things are far stronger than any wedding ring because we know, sadly, that the ring does not guarantee that the wife or the husband will be faithful and will keep their promise, do we? And the longer you're married, the more you see people around you breaking their marriages and abandoning each other. We are weak and we are sinful people. But in baptism, it's not just anyone making a promise to us. It is the God who cannot lie. As we heard the angel saying to Mary, his last words, the word of God does not fail. 
And in baptism, God is saying to us, he's swearing an oath to us, he's enacting a promise to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am washing you clean once and for all. I am sponging every sin and every stain off of you. I'm making you clean and I'm accepting you forever as my son and my daughter. If baptism was about my testimony to God, well, of course, I can abandon that testimony. I can break my promise. But baptism is God's promise to me that, he, that I am his child forever and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Baptism points us, points the church to her husband, Jesus Christ. And yes, there is a connection between forgiveness and baptism. But as Peter himself says in Acts, it's baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism is about God enacting our unity, our union with Christ, and bringing us into this unbreakable marriage covenant relationship with him. And then through Christ, we are given the gift of forgiveness and cleansed of all our sins. And when Peter says into the name of, he doesn't just mean in the name of, he doesn't just mean I'm doing this on the authority of Jesus. He's saying we're actually baptized into Christ. That's how Paul expresses it in Romans 6. We're baptized into Christ Jesus. We're plunged into his death and his resurrection, and we're brought into a new life in Christ. A union so close that even the sweetest and best marriage on earth is only the faintest type and symbol of Christ's relationship with his church. Jesus himself is the gospel. He doesn't just give the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And we can't take any benefit of the gospel and tear it away from Jesus and just enjoy it by itself. Forgiveness of sins can only be received and enjoyed in a living relationship with Jesus. There's no forgiveness. There can be no forgiveness without incorporation into Christ. And once we're brought into Christ by repentance and faith and baptism, once we're converted and we turn and and are placed in Jesus, we're not just forgiven, but we're accepted in the beloved. And when God sees you, he sees you in Christ, and he loves you with the very same love with which he loves you. His son. Baptism is a ritual that imprints, it stamps the identity of Jesus upon us. His name is now written on our foreheads, and his death and his, res- his resurrection become our own as we're buried and raised in the waters of baptism. Our biography changes as our lives now merge into the life of Christ. And his story is now our story. His past is our past, and his future is our future. A great cost to Jesus, of course. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus asks his very ambitious disciples, 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? It's Mark 10, verse 38. Jesus' baptism was the cross. Jesus was baptized into fellowship with sinful humanity, where everything that we possessed, sin and guilt and shame, now became his. And his fellowship with sinful humanity meant that Jesus died and was buried. And he was baptized into condemnation and into death and into shame so that we could be plunged into grace and love and forgiveness and freedom and everlasting life. My baptism preaches the gospel to me because my baptism points me to Jesus just as your baptism did for you or will do for you if that is something you still need to do. It continues to preach to me just as this ring has deep meaning for me beyond my wedding day. When Michelle and I left the church in the car, I didn't toss this out the window thinking this is no longer needed. We did get rid of Michelle's wedding dress because she will not need that again. But the ring, the rings we have kept, right? Because something actually happened on our wedding day. We were changed. We went through this ritual, staring into the eyes of what we now realize were complete strangers almost, right? And we exchanged words and vows, and there was a ring, and there was a kiss, and there were signatures and declarations made. And then we were no longer the same people leaving that church as when we walked in, because now the two had become one. When you were baptized, you were no longer the same person emerging from the water as as you were when you went into the water. Because you come out now as a baptized person, forever marked by the name of Jesus. You are now Completely his. And your baptism was a powerful sign assuring you that you were forgiven by God and washed clean through the blood of Jesus. Was that just a word that you needed to hear on the day of your baptism? I think the longer we follow Jesus and the more seriously we try to be his disciples, Even as we're growing, we realize our sinfulness in a more profound way than we ever did. And so we need this word of forgiveness every single day. That when I wake up, I tell myself, Bart, you are a baptized person. You are forgiven and you are accepted. And when I lay down, I can tell myself, I am a baptized person. I am forgiven. I am accepted. We need this word Every single day. We need to hear God saying to us, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. I have swept your offenses away like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shall we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to make these things more profound, more real, more deep in our hearts? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done through us, through your holy sacraments. Thank you for giving us these gifts to our weak faith, to our feeble sight, so that we can be assured beyond doubt that we belong to Christ, that you have bought us with his precious blood, that you have washed us clean, and we are completely forgiven. We are fully accepted. We are infinitely beloved in Christ. Lord, our identity is in him. Our meaning is in him. Our significance is in him. Our future is in him. And Lord, we rejoice that no word you have ever uttered will fall to the ground. You do not make empty signs. You do not make empty promises, O Lord. What you say, you will do. And by your Spirit, give us the faith to believe what you have promised and to receive what you have so freely given us in Christ Jesus, your Son, in whose mighty, gracious name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.